Hello and welcome to Original Sound Chat, where video game music is a work of art. On each episode, it's our goal to help you learn about two soundtracks from the world of games, as well as the people, stories, and critical tracks behind them. My name is Joe DeVader. And I'm Peter Spasia. We're brought to you by Anonymous Dinosaur and Rhymes with Asia. It's time to appreciate great OSTs and the games that they come from without getting too bogged down in music theory. Up first this week for our two games is 2009's Infamous, the superhero sandbox game where the possibilities of your electrical powers are dictated by whether you use your abilities for good or for evil. Following that is Sucker Punch's second ever production and the beginnings of the master thief who would firmly cement their place as a Sony developer, 2002's Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus. So, Ghost of Tsushima is out this week. There are a couple other games out this week. Paper Mario, the Origami King. Uh, but we've had our eyes pegged on Ghost of Tsushima for a while as a possible Sucker Punch week. Even when it was late June and then it got moved around. So we've had these games kind of penned for this week, for this Sucker Punch week for a while. And we think that's a good theme. Joe, how are you doing this week? I am doing all right, all things considered. I'm uh, very tired. Hmm. That's really about it. I've been traveling a whole bunch for work. Granted, uh, when you get upgraded to first class on flights, oh. it makes it easy to be away from people and sit with your laptop and do podcast editing work. So I must say it's great for that, or if you're doing research, that's awesome. But it means I haven't really been playing anything. Uh, how are you doing with the games? I finished Deadly Premonition 2. <laughs> Boy, they sure made a video game by definition. And uh, it's just been more Symphony of the Night. That's really about it. I plan on starting a couple of games. Oh, Donkey Kong 64. We hit that oh, for... Yeah for Masterpieces, and actually at time of recording yesterday was my first uh, session with it. And I love that game, and we're going to be there for a little while. So You guys are almost out of the 90s. That's crazy. Yeah, we. this is the last game of the 90s, unless they announce another 90s character. Sure, sure. But yeah, for now, this is the final game of 1999. The next game we play came out in 2000. Wow. Uh, yeah, Smash Your Piece is moving along there. Go check out Anonymous Dinosaur and on dino.squarespace.com and on podcast services around the globe to check out your other work there. So, no composer follow-up headlines this week. Let's get right into the games and let's start with talking about our first of two Sucker Punch games, Infamous. Infamous released on May 26th, 2009 in North America for PlayStation 3, a PS3 exclusive title. Europe and Australia got the game on May 29th and June 4th, respectively, in 2009. Japan got it a little later, November 5th, 2009. It is developed by Sucker Punch Productions and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. Infamous is a third-person, open-world action-adventure game where you play as a superhero with electric powers. So you explore the world, you get to climb up buildings, you grind on rails, you get to glide with your electric powers. Uh, basically have different side missions, main story missions, but you can also collect objects that are strewn throughout the world. And then you, when you get into battles, it's almost like it's a third-person shooter bit where you can like fire 
lightning bolts from your hands. It's, it's pretty cool. The game is also known for having a karma system. So whether you use your powers for good or for evil, that ultimately puts this little meter going one way or the other. Blue for good, red for evil. And as a result, you get to unlock different powers based on that. Certain side missions open up based on your karma morality. And then ultimately, it decides one of the game's two endings. That story then being, you are Cole McGrath, a bike messenger who is delivering a package that suddenly explodes and devastates several blocks of Empire City and it kills many people. But somehow, Cole is unharmed. And he discovers that he now has the ability to control electricity. However, the denizens of the city thinks that Cole is the one who caused the explosion. So he's got to go into hiding for a while, and his best friend Zeke Dunbar helps him out with that. But Cole's girlfriend Trish Daly blames him for the attack because her sister was caught in the blast. Well, it turns out that Cole was carrying something called a ray sphere. And this is a device that causes users to turn into conduits, which is a name, special name for humans that have special superpowers. But unlocking someone's conduit abilities means the cost of many lives. And so this is where Cole is approached by FBI agent Moya Jones, who offers to clear Cole's name in Empire City if he helps her find John White another FBI agent who was on the hunt for the First Sons. This is the group behind the Raysphere blast. Now, John is missing, Cole needs to find him, and Moya will help clear his name as a result. So, ultimately, the big question is how will Cole use his electricity powers? Who is behind the First Sons? And can you really trust those closest to you? Joe, here's where I'll ask you, what are our experiences with Infamous? So when I bought a PS3 in 2011, Infamous was one of the three games I bought first. I believe I've talked about it before. It was uh, Marvel vs. Capcom, Heavy Rain, and Infamous. I was a huge fan of Sucker Punch's previous work, uh, which we'll get into heavily in the second half of the show. So I was like, yeah, I want to play their next game. I, I'm very excited. And I played it for like two hours, and it just didn't grab me. Mm. I, just did, I didn't like it. I wasn't having fun. I don't remember exactly why, and I've just never gone back to play another game in the series. And uh, that's a shame, and it's one of the reasons why I'm I'm holding back on Tsushima until I, I go like watch a little bit more, though from what I hear, that game looks great. Uh, so we'll see on that. But yeah, I just wasn't a fan of Infamous when I played it back then. Okay, sidebar. I'm super in on Ghost of Tsushima. I just finally watched the uh, state of play today. And I'm like, oh, it's Assassin's Creed meets Breath of the Wild, all splashed in cinematic samurai films. Okay, sign me up. I'll probably end up getting it and playing it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it, it looks like it's going to be a really good time. Yeah, especially because it is Sucker Punch. And I'm someone who... I got on the Sly Cooper 
bandwagon, certainly later than you did. Mostly because of us. <laughs> right, right. I, I would say so, because I got onto Infamous first with Soccer Punch. Uh, like you, Infamous was among the first games I got when I bought a PS3 in 2011. And yeah, wow, that was a good decision. I had a great time with it. It is a slower starting game, so I, I get that for sure. But it's a series I've thoroughly enjoyed. And at the same time, it's a series with those first two installments with Cole McGrath that are locked to the PS3 era. And I feel like that's a shame. I would you know, recommend going back and giving it a try. But at the same time, I don't necessarily recommend digging out a PS3 for it. I feel like it's one of the games where it's like, how has Infamous not been a PS4 remaster project by anybody? Yeah, that is kind of surprising, actually. Because, like, they, they clearly consider it like that's one of the PS3's big games. You'd think, you'd think they'd bring it over. Exactly. So, hmm. it's a game I really enjoyed. Uh, I you know, went right in. I think, yeah, it was one of the first games I played among, you know, like, L.A. Noir in that, you know, May 2011 era. And so, when I finished the first Infamous, like, the second one was, like, right around the corner, if not just already out. So, I'm like, mm, here we go, right into two. <laughs> it was actually kind of amazing. So let's get into talking about the development story of Infamous. Uh, it was a game developed with a team of 60 people working for about three years. Uh, they apparently had the option to like get more money from Sony to you know speed up the development. But they're like, no, we want to take our time and go through our development process here at Sucker Punch. So that was interesting. Work started at the end of Sly 3, Honor Among Thieves, the last in the original Sly Cooper trilogy. And the team wanted to make something, quote, brazen and loud. Uh, something ideally with like a comic book motif, because they're all big comic book fans. Especially after they spent the last six years working on three Sly Cooper games. So they sought an origin story for a superhero, as well as a project that could give the team some familiarity with the PlayStation 3. When it came to a superhero story inspiration... Uh, it really came from two DC Comics series, being DMZ and Batman No Man's Land. Uh, of course, they drew inspiration as well from Batman Begins at the time, you know, the, the Dark Knight trilogy just starting there in films. But surprisingly, not Static Shock, which you'd hmm. think for a DC superhero that can have mastery over and shoot electricity. Yeah, no, no Static Shock. Uh, Grand Theft Auto 3 and Spider-Man 2 were noted as being inspirations as far as, like, sandbox games were, as far as that's concerned. And then also Assassin's Creed and Crackdown for the parkour around the city and the collectible hunting. There were originally plans for what was called, like, a superhero Animal Crossing-like experience, where Cole would be more involved in the day-to-day -day concerns of the citizens of Empire City, but this was ultimately scrapped. And maybe that was for the best, because the story is ultimately about becoming a superhero. You start from a lowly bike messenger to having these godlike powers. Uh, they picked electricity because it's easy to visualize, especially with you know, the different colors, and it's alluring to look at. But not only that, it gives Cole a relationship to the city. Uh, he can draw power from these nearby elements as, as fuel, as health. From traffic lights, from cars and its batteries, so pulling electricity from these all these places to regenerate health. 
a lot of playtesting elements were involved. Just trying to make the feel of the game just right. Uh, toying with if the different electricity powers would be on like a skill tree that the player could control or if they were doled out at specific moments. Hint, it was the latter. So they could specifically craft combat situations and boss battles and ramping up difficulty all based on this. Even the ability to ride the train rails around Empire City was added in the last month of development, and it was based off of a playtester's suggestion. Now, Infamous is not the first game with a karma system, but I feel like it's one that really embraced it and maybe helped push more of it, you know, in games going forward in this era. I mean, obviously, certainly Bioshock, Mass Effect. Again, it's not a unique idea, but I feel like Infamous is one that just really ran with it and could put a, a superhero twist to it. In fact, writer Nate Fox compared the dichotomy to the differences uh, between like the, the good versus evil, compared it to like Batman versus the Punisher. Batman uses these precision attacks to avoid harming innocents, while the latter is just going to run through anything in his path to complete his goal and get the job done. And yeah, this is all reflected in the abilities you end up getting, uh, you know, the color schemes with red and blue for evil and good, respectively. Uh, Cole changes his appearance based on, you know, if he's all nice and clean, if he's all good, but then he gets really worn down and dirty and evil looking if he goes and does evil things. Also, the citizens of Empire City treat you differently, depending on your good or evil actions. And then, yes, how the story ultimately ends. The game is often drawn a direct parallel to Radical Entertainment's game Prototype. In fact, Infamous was released a few weeks before Prototype. And in Prototype, you play as a human who has superpowers in an open world. In fact, the games were so similar and so often compared together, uh, specifically amusingly so by Ben Yahtzee Croshaw of Zero Punctuation, Oh, by the way, this is in 2009, and yeah, Zero Punctuation was still going then. Dude's been at that gig a long, long time. I forget that it's still happening. <laughs> right? It's uh, it's kind of amazing. So, Yahtzee of Zero Punctuation uh, wanted the respective studios, when he was reviewing the game side by side, to, quote, produce the best image of the rival game's main character wearing a woman's bra. And so... Both teams surprisingly rose to that challenge, and Yahtzee ended up giving the slight edge to Sucker Punch and Infamous, noting that, like their games, both images created independently were nearly equal in the assets that they included. <laughs> so, yeah, Infamous and Prototype, I feel like, are just tethered together in many ways if you look back on video game history. Infamous was reviewed well, uh, had a Metacritic score of 85. There were many aspects of the game praised, such as the gameplay fundamentals, the world traversal and its presentation, the karma system, the story, and the side missions. But things like early game difficulty, uh, sensitive ledge grab mechanics, the simplicity of the comic book cutscene presentation, and some technical issues were early struggles, or just struggles with the game in general. But Infamous sold... 2 million copies, according to Game Informer, as of June 2010. And there were even more copies since then with another bundled release that Infamous was a part of. 
When it comes to awards for the game, though, there was a little game called Uncharted 2 Among Thieves that came out in 2009. So there go all the awards, especially on PlayStation 3. Except for the Golden Game Awards, which I can't find anything about these days. The Golden Game Awards for 2009 gave infamous overall game of the year and best acting. I would feel like Uncharted 2 might have been better, but okay, Golden Game Awards. Maybe it, maybe it missed the cutoff. IGN gave Infamous its Best Script Award, and Eurogamer gave it Best Action Adventure Game. Infamous ended up making quite a name for itself in PlayStation circles. Uh, unfortunately, at one point, infamously so, because it was one of the games included as part of Sony's apology for the PlayStation Network hack of 2011. You also had Good and Evil Cole, making appearances as characters in PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, as well as DLC in the multiplayer mode for Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. Uh, I think Infamous had, like, early multiplayer beta access for Uncharted 2, so the games were connected in some way before uh, Uncharted 2's release anyway. And then Cole was also a guest character in the PS3 and Vita versions of Street Fighter Cross Tekken. Infamous 2 was a sequel for PS3 that continued Cole's story in June 2011, along with a non-canon Festival of Blood DLC expansion where Cole is a vampire as well. <laughs> uh, the PS3 Infamous games ended up being bundled together in the Infamous collection in August 2012, so that added some more sales ultimately to Infamous's total. Though, as I mentioned before, these two games, this this early run of the series, has only stayed on PS3. I don't know how that's possible. But the infamous brand name did continue. Infamous Second Son was a sequel that rebooted the series in a way in March 2014 for PS4. It also got an expansion, a standalone DLC expansion in First Light in August 2014. Nothing from the Infamous series since then, though. Sucker Punch has been busy working on Ghost of Tsushima out this week on July 17th, 2020. Was Second Son the one where at E3, I was reminded of this recently, the guy caught on stage and was talking about like, we live in a surveillance state, et cetera, et cetera. And then it was like, what the, what the hell is he talking about? Yeah. And then it just ends with, infamous second son and everybody watching was like what the what <laughs> yeah that was nate fox who wrote the infamous games as well as many of the sly cooper games and you know tied with ghost of tsushima i actually learned specifically nate fox has been with sucker punch since rocket robot on wheels <laughs> he's been with sucker punch since the company started since the beginning it's kind of amazing it sounds like a good dude uh, i hear good things about him but uh, yeah, it was a weird presentation at the PS4 reveal event when they were showing off the first games, like when Dreams by Media Molecule was still a weird puppet thing with move controllers. Uh, yeah, that was a weird way to reveal Second Son. It wasn't E3, but yeah. It aged very poorly in today's environment. Boy, did it. Looking back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a little weird. Like, it definitely has been all about, like, the, the conduits being these humans that have powers, and then, like, the police state trying to control them, and yeah, it's, it's a little a little bizarre. Let's talk about the music of Infamous, though. I, I feel like it's not a, a well-known 
video game soundtrack, but when we're talking about Sucker Punch games on Sucker Punch Week, and you look at the composers who have worked on infamous games, one name in particular stands out, and that would be Amon Tobin. Amon Tobin was born... <coughs> Amon Adonai Santos de Araujo Tobin, born February 7th, 1972, in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So, Amon Tobin, his father is Irish, and the family ended up leaving Brazil when he was two. Amon lived in places like Morocco, the Netherlands, London, Portugal, and Madeira. Ultimately, he settled in Brighton, England, when he was a teenager. So when he was finally all settled, he could finally focus on his passion for experimental electronic music. Though he really had no training in music theory. But he was just tooling around on different audio equipment, such as an Amstrad Studio 104 track. While he took an editorial photography class at a university in Brighton, he responded to a magazine promotion for the London-based Nine Bar record label when they were asking artists to send in demos of their songs. Now, Nine Bar ended up signing Tobin to the label under his original moniker of Cujo in 1996 after hearing his early work, and he traveled between his home in Brighton and the studios in London to produce his first official works. That first official full-length album was titled Adventures in Foam, and it caught the attention of critics and the larger record label Ninja Tune, who signed him later in 1996 as Amon Tobin. This would lead to the production of his three most notable albums, being Bricolage, Permutation, and Supermodified. He moved to Montreal in 2002, which just so happens to be Ninja Tune's North American headquarters, and this provided new opportunities for him, such as getting to work for Ubisoft Montreal on a video game. He also goes under the moniker of Two Fingers. Uh, he explains that this, this name is used, quote, as a vent to, like, get out excess musical energy before, like, going back to his work as Amon Tobin. Uh, he also released an album in 2019 as Only Child Tyrant. Now, in 2020, he has his own label called Nomark, and he'll be producing music under a variety of names under that label. So, Amon Tobin is all about the experimental, really finding new ways to create sound, in that, quote, creative input is not determined by your source material, but in how you edit and manipulate the sounds. And he is really focused on making music as a labor of love, really driven by inspiration and creativity. He really doesn't find the whole idea of, like, the music business and appealing to the mass market as something that he wants to strive for. It's all about making something that he is happy with and uh, this, that labor of love there. He's inspired by films directed by David Lynch, the Coen brothers, Dario Argento, and Roman Polanski. You can find him on Twitter at Amon Tobin. So he has worked on the video games Splinter Cell Chaos Theory, Infamous, and he did some work for Splinter Cell Conviction. I first heard of Amon Tobin through his music being featured in commercial bumps for Toonami. Uh, he also composed the score for the 2005 anime IGPX. Hmm. 
my brother is a big Amon Tobin fan. So when I saw the name attached to a Sucker Punch game, I'm like, oop, yep, this is the time that we're going to talk about Amon Tobin. Uh, his music also appears in Top Gear and the Grand Tour, so those Brits definitely love his work. Uh, and he also composed the theme music for Orphan Black. Did that under the Two Fingers name. His music has also appeared in 2003's The Italian Job and 2008's 21, as far as major motion pictures are concerned. And he's also produced scores for more independent films, such as Taxidermia and Divine Intervention. He's overall made nine major studio albums under his name, five under his other monikers, as well as 21 EPs. So, yeah, Infamous has very experimental-sounding music, and it, it works very well, actually, because Amon Tobin wasn't the only composer who worked on the game's music. He worked on the game's in-game music, but James Dooley worked on the cinematics, and then the two collaborated to make sure that they were, like, thematically similar. You didn't want them sounding so drastically different. Other collaborating composers include Mel Wesson, Martin Tillman, and Jonathan Mayer. When you look at, like, their YouTube videos that go behind the scenes of making the music for Infamous, it's really all about taking non-musical objects and making them musical, while taking musical instruments and making them non-musical. The idea is Empire City is, like, it's burned, it's destroyed, it's decayed. And so, an orchestral piece wouldn't really fit during gameplay. So these gameplay tracks, the, these stems, these themes, they're more mechanical. They're more electronic to not only fit the environment, but also Cole's powers. Uh, also, as we've seen from other games, especially a little more dynamic soundtracks at this time, the combat pieces in particular are broken up into high, medium, and low intensity versions where stems can be taken out and added as necessary based on how the game determines the intensity of the battle is going. So how does this all sound? Let's get into the five critical tracks and let's start with a battle piece. This is Rabble Rouser. feel like Rabble Rouser is just like generic battle music. Uh, granted, maybe it's like it's a medium intensity. But I feel like this is one of the most recognizable in-game cues. Uh, one that I heard, I'm like, oh yeah, that brings me back to playing Infamous. Like that's the sound of Infamous, especially battles in Infamous. It's just got this great intense rhythm to it. You're hearing like some of the tinkering with strings, adding more... Uh, elements here and there and this is a track that has appeared in the grand tour you can imagine maybe like a car racing around a track i don't know but i feel like if you've played the original infamous before if you if you played it to completion if you have a good memory of it this is a track where it's like oh yeah uh this is on the soundtrack and this is definitely representative of the the combat in game i do really like the the sort of intensity 
that this song brings to the table. You mentioning that it, it shows up in a, a driving show. Yeah, this feels like more like a driving song than like a full-on combat song. Mm-hmm. It feels almost like stealth combat, sort of. Yeah, like, yeah. they know you're there somewhere, but you they don't know where you are, something like that. I don't know. I think this is really good, but I don't know if I take it as, like, full-on battle. I assume this is one of the more low-intensity battle songs, if not medium. Yeah, yeah. I, then that's the thing, I think, is that so many of the soundtracks we've covered on this show are like, it's really driven by melody and tune being thing. And like, that's not the case with this soundtrack. I'll, I'll be more reiterative to, to stress that it's very experimental and it's really driven by trying to create like the sound of a, a city through the music. But yeah, you can totally imagine like Nicole lurking around the top of buildings like, Oh, where'd he go? And he's just ready to drop down on a electrical pulse blast. <laughs> Number two on their critical five. This is The Courier. Something I'll also point out, uh, the fan wiki is not that great with information. The YouTube comments are not especially helpful. Uh, Google searching infamous is difficult. It's an adjective that is associated with other <laughs> media projects. So you got to be like infamous PS3. Infamous, well, I, don't, I don't know. So it seems kind of mixed like where this plays. Uh, maybe it's like a side mission theme or like you're exploring around the city. But I feel like this is a really important track to the game because, like, I feel like this is as Amontobin as it gets. Like, if you're talking about, like, his other work, especially in those, like, Toonami bumps or, like, those those other albums, like, oh, you could listen to it. And if you're familiar with his work, like, I could tell you exactly who composed this. Like, it's it sounds very clear there. Like, the, the drum and the, the bass, whether it's a bass or a cello string, whatever's being uh, warped in this weird way but then you're you're adding these other sounds to really add to like that cityscape like environment it's so chill it's just all about like not necessarily slinking around the city but maybe keeping a low profile if you're like tailing someone i think this is my favorite uh on the on the list of the songs that you you have here because yeah it does have like this chill sort of stalking somebody from afar vibe to it it feels city like but it does feel like you're skulking along rooftops and i uh i don't know i really dig the bass part mostly it's just really good yeah yeah straight up i'm on tobin for sure number three on the critical five this is anything for trish
So again, unsure where this plays, uh, but it seems like it may be missions or maybe the mission that is heavily related to Trish, Cole's girlfriend. She comes around. It's okay. Especially if Cole's a good dude, she, she comes around. This one really stands out on the soundtrack uh, when you're listening through it. It just adds these electric guitars and like these heavy drums for more of a rock vibe. Uh, you're good on... I'm on Tobin for like having the, the breadth of the sound here. It really stands out when you're giving it a listen. I really dig it. And I feel like it's important, especially for a, a pretty important moment in the game, assuming that's the case. Yeah, I kind of did a double take when I heard this for the first time uh, while listening through these songs, because I did not expect a song to sound like this after the last two. I'll tell you that for free. Uh, I I also really dig it. I think the uh, the rock vibe really works. Uh, it still does not feel like something that I'd expect to be from this game, but <laughs> sometimes you need that variety. Yeah, absolutely. But then it's the end of the game where the first Infamous, I think, really shines. And uh, it starts with number four on the Critical Five. This is End of the Road. So this is the final boss theme where you're taking on the head of the First Sons. The game ends in a really cool way, I will say that, especially, like, I think if, if you're a good Karma, you know, user player in the game, like, it definitely rewards you a little better. Both endings are fine for, for different reasons, but uh, big twist at the end when you're fighting this final boss, super, super cool. I'll, I'll say that from a story standpoint. But yeah, since this is composed by Jim Dooley, it sounds a little different. And you're getting a little more instrumentation there, even though it's, uh, you know, the like the final battle. But it really keeps up like that, that epic scale that you'd expect a final superhero boss battle to be. Uh, it's got these, these big hits. It's got all the percussion going. I think it just has all the pieces. Uh, not only makes a, a great moment, in the game, a great battle, a tough battle, for what it's worth, uh, but also a different sound to kind of mix it up here. And it also has a different sound than what I would expect from a final boss theme just in general, which is honestly probably a good thing. Because, uh, like, you say final boss, I don't think this. I think, like, big, bombastic, loud, and this is this is a lot more... It does keep that epic feeling, you're right, but it also, it's very subdued. It's a lot more subdued, and it's got, like... From the sound of it, parts of the courier in there mm -hmm, at the very mm -hmm. least. It does sound very cool. I think I know what the twist is, but I don't remember. Well, in case anyone wants to go back and play it on PS3, uh, we'll, we'll keep it quiet for now. But it also makes sense because like, this is on a, a basically a wasteland of the battlefield. It's where the big explosion happened. So I don't feel like you're, you're not knocking into buildings or anything like that. Uh, for mm. big superhero powers, but like there's there's some desolation here as well, and I think that that fits that tracks. Speaking of tracks, number five on the critical five tracks. Let's wrap it up with the truth.
The Truth is composed by Jim Dooley and Mel Wesson. I believe that this is the music that plays in the cutscene of The Good Ending. I feel like a lot of people in comments and wherever kind of relate to this as like the infamous theme. And I feel like it is the closest to like what you'd identify as like superhero music around this time. I feel like it definitely gives off big Hans Zimmer, uh, Nolan, Batman trilogy vibes to it. Uh, so maybe it's a little more what you'd expect as far as a superhero soundtrack theme. Uh, but for, for a good reason, it's like transitioning in the next part of the story onto the next chapter, so to speak, with Infamous 2. But yeah, I think it, it just shows and kind of completes the circle of the wide range of sounds on this rather eclectic soundtrack. Yeah, I, I think this is my least favorite of the Critical 5 at the very least. It sounds like what I'd expect from a game like this. I don't yeah. know how else to... That's not a bad thing. Like, it's still a good piece. It's still very it's still very interesting and, and fun to listen to. But, like, it just sort of sounds like superhero movie music. Like, you've heard it before, and after you've heard the rest of the tracks, it's it just doesn't stand out in that unique way. Yeah, basically. Got a couple tracks on the cutting room floor. Let's start with one of them being Secrets Revealed. Here's Jonathan Mayer composing this one. Not not John Mayer. I think he also goes by J.D. Mayer. He's a, he's a Sony music executive uh, on this project. And he also contributed some music tracks to this as well. I, I have no idea where this plays. I'll be, I'll be right honest. It might be a, another side mission because it's definitely got that more subdued feel like The Courier. But it's a really neat sense of like playing with these strings. And it's another track that I listen to. I'm like, oh, yep, mm-hmm, infamous. Like, it, it feels sneaky. I like it a lot. I just feel like we had another track like it with The Courier, and so I, I put it here on the cutting room floor. Oh, yeah, I really dig the strings, though. Like, the strings of this song are really, really cool. It's definitely, definitely a good one. And then the other one on the cutting room floor is Genesis. This one is composed by Amon Tobin and Jim Dooley. And I think it's the bad ending cutscene. I don't want to say the, the bad ending. The evil ending. It, it's, yeah, it's thematically fitting for all the actions you've been doing. But I just don't think it's as satisfying narratively. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it's it's another one like it's it's got that superhero kind of vibe. But the instruments are kind of twisted. And when you are this powerful being that has gone evil, well, yeah, that, that kind of fits. But it still has that epic scale, and I think it was worth pointing out here. So what will I never forget about Infamous? Generic title aside, 
And I always strive to write it lowercase i, lowercase n, capital famous, because that's how it is on the box. And it's the only <laughs> way that you can like set it apart on the internet and know exactly what you're talking about is write it in this specific way. Uh, just get this game off of PS3. Honest to God, if PS5 somehow does backwards compatibility, I would be glad to play this game again. I still got my my disc sitting around. I think I got two digitally, but I got the first Infamous that uh, was probably used from GameStop, honestly. Uh, but yeah, wow. I- I'm surprised that it-, it hasn't been remastered or anything like that. Yeah, I don't want to get out the PS3 just for this, but Infamous was my introduction to Sucker Punch. And I feel like it was important for me to talk about if we were talking about Sucker Punch Week. And I get to talk about a composer that I have heard of for years and heard his music for years, but I never really ever got to research. So I'm thankful for that. See, I didn't even realize that it had never been brought over to PS4 until you you mentioned it. And that is super weird. Like, that's really, really weird. There was a point where Sony was just like, everything's coming over everything just the fact that infamous doesn't seem like it was ever touched by that that's bizarre considering how much of a character and an icon and like uh let's put him in playstation all-stars cole mcgrath was a playstation character icon and just you could talk to video game players today and be like who's cole mcgrath and it's like ah whoa what i don't know that's that's baffling to me so to transition to our next game, we like to highlight a fan cover, fan remix, whether it's on OC Remix, YouTube, whatever. Wow. Uh, when you're talking about doing a remix or a cover of Amon Tobin work, did not find a single thing. Kind of shocking, but also kind of not that surprising for work that is so experimental and out there. If anything, then I will highlight a track that Sony specifically commissioned a British band from out of Manchester called Working for a Nuclear Free City. And uh, they, Sony said, can you please make this song, uh, use it for one of the game's trailers. The song is called Silent Melody, and it also is the end credits theme in the game. So yeah, no fan remixes out there, but it, this is a, on the soundtrack, and it's very different. But here it is. Hope you enjoy it. And we will be right back. All right. So we're going from what... Sucker Punch was working on for the past God knows how long before Tsushima. Let's go even further back to the game that kind of just cemented their place as a Sony developer. Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus was originally released for the PlayStation 2 on September 23rd, 2002 in North America, and a European release happened on January 17th, 2003. It was then re-released in 2010 as part of the Sly Collection on PS3 alongside the other two games in the original trilogy. Sly Cooper was developed by Sucker Punch Productions and published by Sony Computer Entertainment. Just like Infamous, this should not surprise you, 
if you've been listening for the past two seconds. We talked about the sequel to this game, Sly 2 Band of Thieves, all the way back in episode 41 of the show. Uh, That may not be as far back as some of the other throwbacks we've had to make in the past couple of weeks, but it's still pretty far. Just like that game, Thievius Raccoonus is a 3D platformer where the player takes control of Sly Cooper, a master raccoon thief. Sly is the latest in a prestigious family of thieves who have operated for centuries, traditionally only stealing from master criminals because, as Sly puts it, if you rip off a master criminal, then you know you're a master thief. And so that's how the Cooper family has been working for the past multiple centuries. And this family has actually compiled all of their techniques and stories that have helped them in their thieving endeavors into one book that has been passed down through the ages, The Thievius Raccoonus. But one night, while Sly is just a child, a ruthless gang known as the Fiendish Five attack his home, killing his parents and ripping the pages from The Thievius Raccoonus. They split the pages among themselves and scatter to the edges of the earth in order to create their own evil operations. Sly winds up in an orphanage where he meets his friends Bentley and Murray. These two become his best friends and form the new Cooper gang, with Bentley as the brains and Murray as the driver. Together, with the help of a police report stolen from the persistent Interpol agent Carmelita Fox, they pledge to track down each member of the Fiendish Five and take those pages back, restoring the Thievius Raccoonus to its former glory. And unlike the later Sly titles, if you remember when we talked about Sly 2, uh, Sly 2 and 3 and 4 are open-world games that are largely built around planning and setting up a heist. Sly 1 is not. Uh, Sly 1 is a more linear level-based platformer. Uh, Each world has a hub that is largely open, but the main goals are located in linear, quote-unquote, jobs, That can be found throughout. You're basically going through these linear levels to get a key at the end to unlock the path forward to the boss or whatever. And there's also basically no stealth to speak of in Sly 1. Uh, Most enemies will immediately aggro once you're in range. And both Sly and enemies die in one hit. Of course, Sly can pick up uh, Lucky Charms, which you can hold up to two at a time. And each one of those will take one hit. Uh, without you dying, but for the most part, Sly dies in one hit, and so does everything around him that's not a boss. Sly has a variety of skills at his disposal, and the game signifies that they can be used by displaying blue sparkles along the area where the player can do so. All of these are done using one single button. You press circle, and you do a thing. Uh, This includes things like sneaking along walls, walking on tight ropes, or landing safely on a sharp point. Uh, As Sly continues in the story and retrieves more pages of the Thievius Raccoonus, more of these abilities actually become available to him. So the story becomes, can Sly avenge his family and return honor to the Cooper lineage, or will he fail and end his family's days of being respected in the world of crime? So this is where I will ask, what are your experiences with Sly 1? After I played the PS3 Infamous games and liked Sucker Punch's work, and then you recommended to me, oh, you should get that Sly collection. I'm like, all right, all right. Got it. Played all three of them. Loved it. Uh, got Thieves in Time, the 2013 game, the, the number four in the series. 
yeah, great, great series. Really enjoyed it. But for me, Infamous was first. Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus is like baby's first stealth game. For better or for worse. Like, it's presented in the, you know, the cartoon style that is, you know, episodic in a way. As you mentioned, there really isn't stealth, but you're doing all these stealthy things. And it's it's really easy. I think it was actually my one of my first Platinum games uh, where I got all the, all the trophies on PS3. Because it's also a very easy game to beat and complete. Yeah, it's incredibly short. I can beat Sly 1 in about three hours at most. <laughs> uh, I It's a game that I have played several times in my life. It's the Sly game that I have played the most out of all of them, simply because of how short it is. And uh, it is my second favorite game in the series, right behind Sly 3. I think I like Sly 3 the most overall. It goes 3, 1, 2, 4. That, that sounds about right. Yeah, there is something charming about this one, though. And I say, like, it's easy, but there is definitely a, a charm to it. The characters that you meet. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll throw it out there. I was driving around today and I saw a, an election sign up today that said, Carmelita for Congress. <laughs> and I'm like, well, isn't that fitting? I didn't even bother to look up who the candidate was, but I just found it interesting that Carmelita. Well, we're going to talk about Sly Cooper. Okay. Interpol didn't work out. She needed a new a new job. Ugh, here of all places? Wow. <laughs> yeah, why'd she come here? She could have been in Paris still. Uh, and so I absolutely adore Sly 1. It is the second game that Sucker Punch ever made, and we'll get into that story in just a second, but, like, it shows. Like, it's very impressive for a, wow, this was your second game? Wow. Uh, but it all, it's also like, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> yes. Because, yes. but, but that's only with the retrospect of like, I can see where they went from there. Um, and it's, it's incredibly impressive to be able to look at the lineage of Sucker Punch from the game that came before Sly all the way to Ghost of Tsushima. It's, it's really neat. And there's not actually a lot of studios I feel like you can see that clear lineage with. Yeah, I mean, wow, I'd, I'd say it's them and Naughty Dog. Like, that's maybe it. Yeah, honestly. I guess Nintendo as well, but, like, that's a whole different thing. It's always super cool to see. So let's talk about the origins of that lineage. On Halloween 1999, that's October 31st for people that don't know what Halloween is. I don't know who that might be, but you never know. Uh, Sucker Punch Productions, a studio that was founded by ex-Microsoft employees who had left shortly after their uh, Windows 95 smash success, now Microsoft controls the world of computing thing? Yeah, that. Uh, They left shortly after that and went and founded Sucker Punch Productions, and there they made their debut title, Rocket Robot on Wheels, for the Nintendo 64 in North America. It is the only Sucker Punch game to ever be released on something other than a Sony platform, which is bizarre to think about. Yeah, it really is. Wow. Uh, And the game did manage to get some minor success upon release. Uh, It's looked on in retrospect rather fondly by fans, though I don't hear people talk about it that often. Uh, But when they did this, one of the major hurdles that they found that they had to go through for Rocket was trying to find a publisher for the game. 
because they had gone with a method that they say they would later consider a mistake, being that uh, the game was well into development by the time they even started looking for a publisher. Oh, no. And so nearly every deal wanted them to either cancel the game or because they said they went to EA and EA was like, yeah, we'll publish your game, but you have to cancel what you have now and move it onto the PS2. Uh, hmm. And they said, no, we won't do that. And they backed away. Uh, or they wanted them to move it off of the N64 in general. They even approached Sony Computer Entertainment about publishing the game. But they went to them and said, like, all right, here's the deal. We want you to publish the game. It's going to come out on the Nintendo 64. But then we'll port it to the PS1. Unsurprisingly, Sony said no. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But I do find it kind of interesting that they did they did go to Sony with the game. So, when they got into Sly 1 development, they decided they were going to change two things. One, they were going to increase the size of the team because Rocket Robot on Wheels had been developed by a team of roughly 17 people, Nate Fox being one of them. And they were going to go find a publisher first. <laughs> Eventually, they were picked up by Sony to develop an exclusive for the PlayStation 2. And there's not actually a huge amount of information on the development of this game. Uh, the Wikipedia article is very short in the development section. And the the most frustrating thing was for us to pull back the curtain a little bit on how at least I do my research for the show. I always start with the Wikipedia article if it's there because they they have their cited sources. And that's always a great jumping off point. You can go and look at the actual articles. If they still exist, if the game is old, there's a good chance they don't, which is always a bummer. Yeah, big if there. But I was able to, I went into the Rocket Robot on Wheels Wikipedia article, and I was able to find an IGN article that was like, the history of Sucker Punch, but it was only part one, and there was no link to parts two or three. Mm. So it ended when rocket came out i don't have a huge amount of information on the the development of sly cooper but i was able to find a few gems uh, first of all sly cooper's art style is extremely distinct if you've played the game then you know this sly cooper has a very sort of saturday morning cartoon animated film look to it uh and that was on purpose they do not describe the art style of Sly Cooper as cell-shaded. They describe it as tune-shaded. And when asked what the difference was, they said they wanted to make a game that looked like you were playing an actual animated film. Uh, the characters all have, have thick outlines to them, and they're in the foreground. They're like, that's that's where they live. And then the backgrounds have this painterly style to them. So it's like a movie where, like, the background and the character are animated separately. Uh, and to get this effect, they actually used a different shader for the environments than they used for the characters in them. Uh, a quote I found was, We wanted Sly and his world to look illustrated, but one step away from a flattened graphic style. So they wanted it to look like an animated film, but not like a 2D animated film entirely. Unsurprisingly... Running two shaders at the same time for different things caused some lovely frame rate issues on the PlayStation 2. 
And to address this, Sucker Punch says that there was one engineer whose entire job for all of development was to work to avoid frame drops and slowdown. That was his whole job. The art team apparently also gathered hundreds of photos and drawings of areas that were similar to the levels that they wanted to create in order to generate backgrounds out of them. And uh, the main characters, they said, also apparently underwent anywhere from six to eight major redesigns. Including Sly also being named Sly Raccoon. Yeah. One of the things that I wasn't able to find in any articles, but I remember seeing, I think it was in Sly 1. In one of the Sly games, you can unlock behind-the-scenes stuff, like the making of sort of videos showing early early development footage and one of them was of sly one and it might have been in sly one it, it was other that or sly two i'll never forget this they were like yeah sly had a very different voice back then and it's him walking out onto the very first level in raleigh's area and pulling out his binaki and being taught how to like climb ladders and stuff which is jump and hit the circle button like everything in the game and uh He's got a voice like this. I'll just use my climb move. Uh, it's it's amazing. I almost wish they went with that. I'm glad they didn't. The voice that Sly has now is, is great. Um, but it's just, it was really funny to hear. There was also like some mechanic that had to do with Sly like spraying something out of his cane. Like hmm. a mist thing. It would transform into this sort of gun and he could spray like lasers and stuff like that but that was also cut as well i wish i had more information on the development of this game but they're just it was very scant unfortunately i did manage to find a one-up interview that ended on the stupidest note like one of those one of those things where you're reading the question and you're like how did you ask that think to ask this in a professional interview what is wrong with you and it was something along the lines of, like, Sly is very effeminate. Does he want to get with women? Does he have any desire for women? Whoa, jeez. And it's just like, first of all, what are you doing? Second of all, the last cutscene in the game. Did you play it? It's three hours long. <laughs> like, wow. It just, oh, it, it blew me away. Uh, so... Upon release, Sly 1 was very well received by critics. Uh, it is currently sitting at a Metacritic of 86, which is one point above Infamous, which means I win. Uh, <laughs> that mean that actually means nothing. Never, don't take stock into that. But, <laughs> but it was reviewed pretty well. Uh, roughly, roughly the same as Infamous, if that's anything to go by. Uh, most reviews praise the art style and also the ease of learning how to do things in the game. Because again, everything is hit circle. Jump and hit the circle button. All else fails, jump and hit the circle button. You win. But they did criticize the length, and honestly, this is the first time where I kind of get it. Uh, it is, it's three hours long. Like, you can finish this whole game in an afternoon. Usually I'm like, man, why is that a criticism? I don't get it. But in this case, I think I sort of get it. It's not Pokemon Snap short, but for like a full narrative adventure, maybe a little short. It's almost Pokemon Snap short. It's about an hour longer than Pokemon Snap. <laughs> Sales, though, even with all this praise, 
didn't start out so hot because it happened to release around the same time as Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter, two other 3D mascot platformers. So Sly kind of got lost in the noise of those two, which were majorly successful. It was, however, still able to hit 400,000 units within its first year, which allowed it to be reprinted as part of Sony's greatest hits line. If you've seen uh, the boxes, like on PlayStation 2, it was like a red bar on the top. It said like greatest hits. And they were cheaper. These versions were usually cheaper. And this actually is the point where it started selling a little better. Uh, according to Sony, combined sales of all versions of Sly 1 have reached about 2.2 million units just in the U.S., which is pretty good, all things considered. Uh, Sucker Punch would go on to make two more games in the series, both on the PlayStation 2 being Sly 2 Band of Thieves, which we have an episode on, and Sly 3 Honor Among Thieves, which maybe one day I will talk about that one too. Uh, before ending the series and moving on to Infamous right afterwards. Uh, Sanzaru Games would go on to develop the Sly Collection in 2010, which is an HD remaster that included all three games, and then later developed a brand new title, being Sly Cooper Thieves in Time, in 2013. Uh, Sly appeared alongside Cole in PlayStation All-Stars Battle Royale, and he and Bentley were part of the ill-fated PlayStation Move Heroes. That's right. Alongside the two protagonists that almost spelled their doom so long ago. Like, isn't that kind of weird to think about? They're, sh they're in that game with Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter, and those are the two games that almost made it so that Sly Cooper did not continue. Yeah, yeah. I remember selling that at the Toys R Us, yeah. I keep forgetting that game existed. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure when we talked about Sly 2, you had to remind me that that game was real. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had forgotten that it existed in general. So, yeah. But, sadly, uh, outside of a film announcement that has seemingly been silently canceled and a TV show that has seemingly been silently canceled uh, the Sly Cooper series has now essentially become a dormant franchise uh, no new entries since 2013 <sighs> Sly 4 ends on a cliffhanger anyways <laughs> let's talk about the person behind the music of Sly 1 because it is not Peter McConnell who did the music for Sly 2 and 3. Uh, it was a man by the name of Ashif Hakik. And I say we're going to talk about him, but it's not a lot. Once again, I was not able to find a whole lot of information on him. I did find him on Twitter. Uh, he can be followed over at BX Dash. And it appears that he has retired from game music. Uh, his last game project released in 2005 and his twitter bio reads i used to make music for video games maybe i will again hmm. i couldn't find any like interviews with him at all and find any information on him he is fairly active on twitter he actually posts links to a soundcloud account uh, i think when i was looking he posted something i guess he like sent in a demo to try and land Jack and Daxter before he got Sly 1. Hmm. And so he posted the song that, like, this is the demo I sent Naughty Dog to try and get onto Jack and Daxter uh, before I got on Sly. Uh, and that kind of thing. So he he posts a lot of stuff on, on SoundCloud. 
So definitely go give him a follow. It seemed like a very interesting uh, account to follow. In terms of his discography, his first game project was Tomba 2, The Evil Swine Return, the international version of that game. Uh, and then he also did the North American version of Fantavision, which my roommate is actually playing. I don't know what that game is. Hmm. I just know that Ben is playing it. And I had to tell him last night, they're like, yeah, the version you're playing was probably done by the same dude who did uh, Sly 1. He was like, awesome. Yeah. Uh, of course, did Sly 1, Godai Elemental Force. But his most notable work, uh, at least as far as I could tell, the one that gained the most uh, praise is for Crash Nitro Kart. And some of that music actually would go on to appear in last year's Crash Team Racing Nitro Fueled. So his music is kind of living on in that way. Uh, he also did music for a game I'm not familiar with called Inspector Parker in Betrapped. And his final project, at least according to Moby Games and a couple of other sites, was 2005's A Series of Unfortunate Events, the game based on the Jim Carrey film. Boy, bet you forgot that movie happened. Yeah, I just think of NPH. Thank God for that Netflix series being good. Uh, <laughs> According to Hakik, the soundtrack was actually largely inspired by the game's art style, as well as the various locations that the game took place in. Uh, we heard a very similar thing from McConnell when we talked about Sly 2, where he was basing a lot of it on, like, the globe-trotting nature of a Sly game. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, they're, they're going to different parts of the world, and it wouldn't make sense if all those parts of the world sounded exactly the same. Uh, he cites major inspirations for the soundtrack as composers like Henry Mancini and Carl Stalling. That checks out. But also Yoko Kano's work on Cowboy Bebop. Hey. Which, weirdly enough, we've talked about on this show. <laughs> he says, quote, The interactive music engine we used made us consider the gameplay for each specific level a sort of starting point that would influence the way the music would be written. So, like, when you get into a fight, the music changes. Uh, the music can change if you're in specific parts of levels, things like that. Yeah, there's like a bass, there's like a sneaking version, and there's a combat version. Yeah, and so it's it's very interesting to know that, that that pretty much entirely was based on just the way the game is playing in general. But that's really all the information I could find on the actual development of this this soundtrack. Uh, maybe one day we'll talk to a shift. Hakik. Who knows? That sounds like I'm setting something up. We didn't talk to Shifakik. <laughs> <laughs> Just ripping that bandaid off real quick. So let's get into the five critical tracks for this game. They are much different from Infamous, so be ready for that. We're going to start with... I tried to get one song from every major world, basically. Uh, so these are in order of where they appear in-game. And first being... From the Welsh Triangle world of Sir Raleigh the Frog, High Class Heist. So this plays uh, in the level by the same name. In that level, you are like going into this part that's like where Sir Raleigh 
keeps all of his fancy stuff that he stole from ships. Uh, yeah, that. Uh, Raleigh is like a pirate, sort of, who grew up really rich and then decided being rich was stupid, and so became a pirate instead. And I respect that. Hmm. Uh, I wish I had that trajectory in life. Uh, I think of this song when I think of this part of the game for some reason. Like, this is the song I think about the most. And I think it's the harpsichord. The harpsichord is the best part of this song. It's, it makes it sound very fancy, while the rest of the song still has this, I want to say, like, waterlogged feeling to it. Yeah. Like, it, it doesn't escape that sort of sea stormy feeling while like that that harpsichord being in the background gives it that fancy feeling uh, i think it fits the level perfectly i also feel like the vibes and the uh bass are quintessential sly cooper music and my dog agrees as he, he shakes off it's just get those like those <laughs> stealthy chills <laughs> yeah i i agree that the the bass part is also very good but if you want to talk about a bass part, we got to get into critical track number two. Uh, in Mugshot's Turf in Mesa City, it's Back Alley Heist. I promise I didn't pick two songs with the heist in them on purpose. I actually didn't realize that they both had the word heist in them until just now. Uh, somehow. This plays, again, in the level of the same name. Uh, it was honestly between this and Boneyard Casino when it came to Mesa City songs. Uh, but I think this one wins out because it just it has such a nice beat to it. It has that, that really good bass part. It's got the cool piano part to it. And it just feels really alley-like. And also just completely different from the song before this. In all ways. It's a nice saloon swing. I really dig it. And Mugshot's area is one of the better ones in the game. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like I like Mesa City a lot. Uh, it almost feels like it would be the soundtrack of one of those gangster movies that Mugshot loves so much. Uh, Mugshot's story is that he was a small little dude. And he got bullied, but then he watched gangster movies and said, I want to be that. And then he got super ripped and beat up all his bullies and then became a gangster. That's his whole story. Big old bulldog. I really love the the villains in Sly Cooper. They're like the best part. Yes. All of them are all of them are fleshed out and, and memorable characters, and they're just so great. Absolutely. And then you get to slide two and it's Dimitri. <laughs> it's Dimitri, you got Rajan and 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 like Jean Basson is also a lot of fun and there's just so much fun stuff in the Sly Cooper series. If you haven't played Sly Cooper, it pains me to send you to the Sly collection, but that's the only way that I can do it. And the reason it pains me to send you to the Sly collection is closely related to our third critical track. That is a deadly dance. 
This song plays during the boss fight with Ms. Ruby, which is, in my opinion, the coolest boss fight in the series. By far. Sly bosses aren't generally like the most amazing boss fights in the world. Uh, they're good, they're fun, they're fine, but they're kind of just boss fights, you know. Except for Ms. Ruby, where it's like, what if it was a rhythm game? And then they made a rhythm game, and it's really good. It like works really well. Uh, you can hear it in the in the clip uh, because it's it's kind of impossible to include this song and not include the gameplay sounds because they're part of the level. Mm-hmm. They're part of the song. Uh, and so Ms. Ruby like throws the symbols on the PlayStation controller at you and you have to press them in the rhythm so that Sly dodges them. Uh, and it's it's super good. It's like Parappa. You know, we talked about Parappa the Rapper. Sly. It's like Parappa, but if they made a good game. <laughs> yes, yes, that's a good way of putting it. Uh-huh. Uh, I would actually play a whole game that played like the Ms. Ruby boss fight. There's probably, that probably exists, actually. <sighs> Sly Collection broke this fight, and I will never not be mad about this. Uh, some some bug presents itself for a majority of players uh, where the music desyncs from the boss. And makes this boss near impossible to play. Uh, I have to turn the sound off when I play this boss on the Sly Collection. I've never been more angry in an HD collection in my life. This is the one. This is the grudge I will always hold. I, I mean, Silent Hill Collection, though. Okay, yeah, all right. No, you're right. No, you got it. <laughs> I'm like, I, I know you. I know you. Uh, no, and I think I might have been in the minority because I... With stories told throughout podcasts, like I don't recall having this issue, so I, I must be lucky. But yeah, it feels like those early rhythm games before, like Guitar Hero and, and Rock Band, got it down. Like sometimes you just have to ignore the music, which is a shame because it's it's a great piece of music. This is such a cool boss fight, and the HD collection kills it. All the other games are fine. Everything else in Sly One is fine, and Sly Two and Three work perfectly fine. They're great, uh, but it's this one boss. So if you do want to play the Sly Cooper trilogy, I do heavily recommend the Sly Collection still. Just be known, uh, the best part of Sly 1 is broken. <sighs> it's a great song, though. It's a really, really good song and a really fun level. Ms. Ruby is is great because she's, she's a voodoo priestess, basically. Nobody wanted to be her friend because she was weird and a voodoo lady. And so she was like, then I'll summon ghosts and they'll be my friends. Cajun Gator. She's she's great. I can feel that Koopa vibe coming. <laughs> ah, this would be fun. Uh, even though Haiti is the worst world in Sly 1. All the levels in Haiti suck. <laughs> Almost entirely. Uh, so let's move on from Haiti and head on into China, the territory of the Panda King and talk about our fourth critical track, Flame Foo.
This is the boss fight with the Panda King. Uh, it is a very simple song. Honestly, there's not a lot to it, but I really, really like it. It always gets me really hyped and kind of gets my blood pumping. Uh, and it's just this, this fast paced sort of boss melody for honestly, what is one of the easiest bosses in the entire game. And apparently I, I learned recently that, uh, he's so easy because he was supposed to be the first boss in the game. Oh, and then they moved him to near the end. <laughs> I couldn't find a source on that, but I saw multiple YouTube comments talking about how like, yeah, he was like, he was supposed to be closer to the beginning. That's why he's so easy, uh, which would make sense because he is pathetically easy to beat. Uh, this melody actually kind of makes a comeback in Sly 3 because Panda King comes back in Sly 3 as an ally. It's really cool. Uh, he is a he is a really neat character who gets revisited in later games, and I think that this song is just such a a very heavy part of his identity to me. Uh, he his backstory is that he grew up really poor in China, and he saw all of the fireworks displays that the nobles were setting off and said, "That's what I want to do. I want to make fireworks." And so he he worked super hard to learn how to make fireworks but when he tried to sell them to the nobles they were like get out of here peasant you suck leave and so it was like fine and he decided to use his fireworks to bomb things <laughs> uh one of the first things you see him do in the game is uh like launch a firework at a mountainside and bury a village in an avalanche because they didn't pay their protection money it's nuts and also they watched mulan <laughs> We also watched Mulan, yes. Uh, like, this This song is great, though, and the Panda King is also great. And one day I'll talk about Sly 3, and we'll talk about how the Panda King becomes one of the most interesting characters in the series. But we have to talk about who is actually legitimately one of the most interesting characters in the entire series with Critical Track number 5, A Strange Reunion. For the final level of Sly 1, you have to go to the Krakow Volcano in Russia, which is the home to the final member of the Fiendish Five, Clockwork. Clockwork is a giant robot owl who has supposedly been alive for thousands of years, hundreds of years, I guess, more accurately. He's been alive long enough to basically have have known almost every member of the Cooper family going back centuries. Uh, and he was kept alive simply based on the fact that he hated the Coopers so much that it effectively made him immortal. And then he eventually replaced his whole body with, like, machinery in order to be even better. This is the final boss of, of Sly 1. It's not a super exciting boss fight, but granted, you wouldn't really know that from this song, because this song is very, like, 
dire. And it's really like trying to drive home that like the stakes are really high with this fight. Uh, you're in a, a jetpack shooting little pellets at him and flying through hoops. And it's not the most exciting fight in the world, but I think it does a really good job music wise. Even though that, that vocals MIDI is a little rough, but I think it does good with what it has. Uh, I really like this song. Yeah, yeah, it's a cool song. And uh, Clockwork is far and away one of the best characters in the whole series. Uh, he's he's legitimately threatening. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. But yeah, I mean, really cool work uh, on the music front. Even if some of the midis, you're right, are, are a little, little dated by this point. He is so evil that the entirety of Sly 2 is based around how evil he was and how even when you killed him, he didn't die. Uh, spoilers. Seriously, go play Sly. Go play Sly Cooper. What are you doing, listener? Come on. We, we talked about it, Sly 2. You were getting clockworks parts. Like, come on. Do it for me. Go play it for me. Don't you want to do it for me? Anyways, for tracks on the cutting room floor, you got two. Let me hear them. The first one is like from the beginning of the game because you're at the the police headquarters at Interpol in Paris. This is police headquarters, Carmelita. Carmelita for Congress. Uh, you gotta escape Carmelita. It, it's a cool little, little bouncy little track. I, I definitely dig it, and I figured we had to get something from the beginning of the game. I think this might also play as some of the battle themes somewhere in Raleigh's area, but I don't know for sure. But yeah, this is a this is a very uh, good section, and it is a great introduction to Carmelita. Even though now knowing what I know about game development, I'm like, yeah, she's like T-posing in the background there until you you hit that point and she jumps out. She has to be. I know it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The other one on the cutting room floor for me is Last Call. talk about boss battles is the boss battle against mugshot because mugshot's cool even if he is a gangster and he feels transgressed and violated that's one of the best lines in the entire game Uh, yeah and apparently i i went and looked it up because i was like wait i remember this playing elsewhere this also plays in uh at the dog track Mm. which is one of the worst levels in sly one uh it's the first of the races there are two races in Sly 1, and they both suck. At the dog tracks, the worst one. The races are garbage. They're so bad. Oh, I had almost forgotten. Wow. Yeah, they're really bad, and apparently this song plays there, too. I think it's better to remember it with the mugshot boss fight, because that boss fight is a lot of fun. Uh, I have mastered it. I can basically, like, I can beat this boss fight in probably two minutes. Especially that last phase with all the spire jumps. I'm really good at that one. Sly 1 is one of the only games in the world that I am very good at. Though I've never tried to speedrun it, so... Eh. For me, I also got two. Uh, The first one is A Ghastly Voyage. (laughs) 
This song plays in uh, one of the areas in Haiti, where you're on like a skiff, like a swamp skiff thing. Uh, it's a bad level. It's not a good level. Most of the levels in Haiti aren't very good. Uh, there's a level where you're running away from a snake. That's the only one I can think of that's actually good. Uh, this song is like genuinely kind of creepy sounding. It's very quiet. It's calm. It's slow. It has this really kind of unnerving banjo part, which when you think of a banjo part, you don't think slow and creepy. But this one pulls it off real well. I like the song a lot. Definitely different than the rest of the tracks, but yeah, really nice atmosphere. Good pick. I, I figured that was fitting for you with mm-hmm. spooky atmosphere. Yeah, you know me. Love me a spooky atmosphere. And speaking of the direct opposite of that, uh, uh, my other song on the cutting room floor is A Perilous Ascent. This plays in the first level that is your introduction to the Kunlun Mountains of China, where the Panda King has set up shop. Uh, it's just, it's kind of a cool feeling song. Uh, honestly, if Flame Fu didn't exist, then this probably would have been my pick for the China song. Uh, but Flame Fu does exist, so it's not. But I just, I just really like the intensity of this song in a sort of way. I don't know, it's great. So what will I never forget? about Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus, uh, I actually started with Sly 2. I don't remember why. I think I like saw a commercial on TV for Sly 2. I'm pretty sure that is the only game that a commercial has ever actually sold me on, like a TV <laughs> commercial. I can't think of a single other game that I that I like ended up getting because of a of, uh, commercial on TV. But uh, this game and its soundtrack still have a very special place in my heart. I, I went and got Sly 1 very shortly after finishing Sly 2. Uh, well, I had my dad go out and buy me Sly 1 shortly after I finished Sly 2 because I was a child and I did not have my own money at that time. Sly Cooper is still one of my favorite game franchises of all time. Uh, it's up there with Persona. I, I love it. God, please give me another game. Give it to someone other than... I, they can't give it to Sanzaro anymore. because Sanzaro recently got bought by Facebook, I believe. Mm-hmm. So they can't give yeah. it to them. But like, Give me another Sly game, please. Sony? Unless Sly is going to be like, I'm going to steal the information of your friends on Facebook. I'm waiting. I'm waiting, Sucker Punch, for you to tell me that Sly Cooper is an Easter egg and playable in Ghost of Tsushima. I'll buy two copies if that's the case. Oh my god, that'd be so cool. (laughs) I'll buy two (laughs) copies if you do that. Sly Cooper is a fantastic series. Granted, like it is meant for a younger audience, but there's still something so fun about it. And yeah, you're right. The villain characterization is top notch, and it really definitely captures that Saturday morning cartoon vibe where it's the villain of the week. Uh, great, great stuff. Hmm. So yeah, uh, go pick up Ghost of Tsushima. That'll do it for Sucker Punch Week here on the show. Games that mean a lot to us from that studio. So thank you, Sucker Punch, and everyone that works there for all the work that you do. That'll do it for us on Original Sound Chat for this week. You can find me on Twitter at Pete Speakeasy. Joe is over at Throbaga. The video version of the show is on the Rhymes with Asia YouTube channel, also at rhymeswithasia.com, but it's that MP3 podcast version that you want. On Anonymous Dinosaur at anondino.squarespace.com. 
Also find original sound chat. Also, Joe's other podcast, Smash Your Pieces, on podcast services around the globe. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, even on Spotify. We also have not only the podcast feed on Spotify, but a Spotify playlist where if we cover video game music on this show and it's on Spotify, it's going on that playlist. Anything this week, Joe? Uh, Infamous is on Spotify, but uh, none of the Sly Cooper games ever got an official release for their soundtracks, so sadly. Not that one. Mm, That's unfortunate, but good on Infamous. Thank you, Sony. And then we'll work on some bonus tracks for you here in the future. Joe, who are we talking about next week? Next week's going to be a really weird episode. I will be talking about Cyril Bowler. I will be talking about Kenneth Young. It will be a weird episode, but I think a good one. Let's play us out, Joe. So uh, I had to find a remix of uh, A Strange Reunion. Uh, First of all, it was the easiest one to find. Most remixes you're going to find of Sly games are from two or three for the most part. But uh, A Strange Reunion seemed to have a couple of options. And the one that really struck a chord with me was by YouTuber Retro Spectre. Uh, So please enjoy that. It's got a really cool vibe to it. Thank you so much for listening this week on Original Sound Chat. We'll see you next time. Take care.